Please turn to me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. If you remember, the church started out of great adversity, but they're strong and they're faithful because of that. And this early epistle is written to encourage them in that faithfulness and also to help them understand more about the amazing things of God. Paul began this letter by giving thanks to God for these Thessalonian believers, especially as he remembers their active and growing faith, love, and hope, which are all vital marks of true saving faith. Last time we saw the truth that undergirded everything else, their election by God, which was proved out by the way that they responded to the gospel. Let's find out what happens next, verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Now here in today's passage we find four great qualities of these Thessalonian believers that we would all do well to emulate as lovers of God. If you remember from last time, Paul talked about what kind of men that he, Silvanus, and Timothy were amongst the Thessalonian believers, how they were godly men, how they were men of integrity, how they adorned the gospel well by the way they lived out their faith how they practiced what they preached, how they battled sin, and how they pursued Christ, and so on. See, the lives of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were a glowing testimony to the power of God for salvation and also for daily life and the truth of the gospel. And it was clear. It was evident. It was unmistakable, verse 5. And then look, the next thing that Paul says in verse 6 is this. You... You you saw our our example, and then he says this, you became followers of us and the Lord. I I love that. That's so good. And that's the first quality that we would all do well to emulate. You followed us and the Lord. First, us. This is pretty shocking. I mean, you'd expect Paul to say, you followed the Lord first, and to follow Christ first, and then you follow those who follow Christ. But Christ comes first, but instead, he said, you followed us and the Lord. Why that order? Because he's giving the order of their personal experience. See, their first introduction to the Lord was seen in the lives of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. That's uh, the way things happen. Isn't that true? I mean, people usually meet Christ first, really, when they meet us. People see what Christ is like when they see us as Christians. They experience His love and His grace and His goodness and His kindness when they are with us. I mean, that's how it works. Look, we as Christians are Christ's ambassadors, and our call is to represent Christ well to all the souls that are around us, because that's how the lost first come into contact with Jesus, through us. The word followed is a Greek word, mimetes, from which we get our English words mime, which refers to someone who imitates another person, pantomime, and also mimeograph, which is a machine that makes copies from a stencil. So the word means to copy, to imitate, and to pattern your life after who? Well, what does he say? Us. Here we find that 
as the Thessalonian believers came to saving faith and then sought to glorify the Lord with their fading lives, they were able to look at the three missionaries, us, to see what good Christians look like. Oh, wow, I get it now. I I get it now. Christians love like that. Christians pray like that. Christians forgive like that. Christians are humble like that. Christians are servant-hearted like they are. Christians speak like that. Christians are generous and merciful like that. Yes, I get it now. Thank you, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. See how it works? They gave the Thessalonian believers living godly examples to follow after. And look, they followed those godly and biblical examples. This is why I read a lot of Christian biographies. (laughs) Because they give me godly examples to follow after. And they also give me a lot of hope that if they can do it, then hey, so can I. If they can pray like that, then so can I. If they can be faithful like that in the fire, in the hardship, in the heartache, then so can I. If they can redeem the time with such passion, so can I more and more and more. Now I have many living examples that encourage me to be a better man of God. Thank you very much. Many of you are examples of that. I also have many examples of people who have been long dead, who have encouraged me to follow passionately after the Lord until glory. One long gone example is John Huss. John Huss was born around 1370. His last name, Huss, literally means goose, and it's from his terrible fate that that phrase, your goose is cooked, was derived. When he was 22, he became a preacher, and because of his godly convictions, Huss was excommunicated for faithfully preaching and for believing the truth as opposed to the lies that were so very prevalent in his day. He was soon tried for his beliefs, but instead of receiving a fair trial, Huss was imprisoned for months, and he was eventually brought before the authorities in chains and asked to recant his views. Guess what? Huss did not recant his views. They then stripped him of his priestly garments. They degraded him. They put a paper hat on his head with devils painted on them with this inscription, a ringleader of heretics. He still refused to recant, and as a result, he was to be burned at the stake. When the time came, the executioners undressed him, and they tied his hands behind his back with ropes. They then tied his neck with a chain to a stake, and then they piled up wood and straw so that it covered him up to the neck. The fire was then kindled, and as the flames burned, Hus sang. That's a true story. He sang, Christ, thou Son of the living God, have mercy on me. That's an example of what, of, of, of someone that I want to follow after. That inspires me to trust God no matter what. And I praise God for examples like John Huss. One more example. Bloody Mary was Queen of England in 1553. Mary hated the Protestants, the Christians, so she sought to do away with them as best she could, so she went after the leaders, the the preachers, although she put 55 women and four children to death for their faith. The plan was simple, make the reformers of the church recant their biblical convictions or else put them to death by burning them at the stake. One of the men who was put to death was a man named John Rogers. Rogers was the first to be brought to the stake under Mary, and on the morning of his death, he was hardly able to get dressed because he was rushed out so quickly. 
He was then led to the place of his death, which was within sight of the church that he preached at. As he was walking to his death, the people from his church, along with his wife and ten children, stood along the road. As he walked to the stake, he kept repeating Psalm 51, a great psalm. And he went to his death, as I quote, as if he was walking to his wedding. He was tied to a stake and burned for preaching the gospel and for being faithful to Christ. That's an example I want to follow after. A man of God, a a man of conviction, a man who stood strong and firm for the Lord, a man who inspires me to be more like Christ. See, people like that, living and dead, give me hope by their godly examples, which is needed, right? It's needed today, and it's good. What about you? Paul actually said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Follow me, even as I follow Christ. And even though Christ is our ultimate example to follow after, it's also good to have other examples of normal people, normal people like us, who are following Christ in growing measure in their lives. It's inspiring, see? It gives hope. Lord, help us to give hope to those around us. Look, you can be a stumbling block to people or else you can be an inspiring example to people in the eternal things of God. I say, be an example. Like Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were examples and like so many today and in the past were examples. So, the Thessalonian believers first followed the godly examples of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And then, of course, they also followed the example of the Lord, who is our ultimate and perfect example to follow after. Christ, God the Son, is Lord. And the call is to look at Christ and then to look at yourself and compare. How you doing? That's what the Thessalonian Christians did, and, and, and they didn't stop there. They didn't stop there. They also compared themselves, and then they acted on what they saw. And then they followed the pattern of the Lord in their lives more and more and more. That's pretty radical stuff when you think about it. I mean, most people don't do this. Earnestly seek to pattern their lives after Christ, even Christians. Instead, most willingly choose to remain spiritually stagnant and mediocre unlike Christ. And they never really grow, not really, in their godliness, which is incredibly sad for those of us who love Him. Others do that, but only partly unlike Christ. Where they willingly ignore big, massive areas in their life that aren't matching up more and more with Christ's pattern. So they have these glaring holes in their spiritual development which not only gives Christ a bad name, but it also makes them look like massive hypocrites. That's not good either. But our call, as lovers of the Lord, is to be like the Thessalonian believers who followed the example of the Lord. And we do well to do that and to never, ever, ever, ever grow weary in that. To never settle for anything less than that. To never stop in this great pursuit of Christ-likeness, to always keep moving forward, knowing that that has eternal value and also knowing that that greatly pleases the God whom we love. So, what pattern did Christ give us to follow after? Well, He was perfect, so there's that. (laughs) But what can summarize that pattern? One word, love. 
love. In Ephesians 5.1, Paul said to be imitators of God. And then the next verse says to walk in love just as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us. And that's a, a really a perfect summary for us. Christ walked in love and we are called to be like Christ. Walk speaks of your daily conduct, how you regulate and conduct your daily life. How? How are we supposed to do that? In love. Like Christ did, first to God and then to others. The word for love is that Greek word agape, which speaks of a distinctly Christian love, the unconditional, sacrificial love that God is, the love that's a fruit of His indwelling Spirit. Gentle, humble, caring, serving, forgiving, compassionate, selfless, meek, like Christ who is our example. Look, all right, he's our example, right? Christ our example brutally died for us. Christ our example humbled himself. We're talking about God here, God the Son. He humbled himself and he washed dirty feet. Be like that. Christ forgave those who killed him. Be like that. Christ was merciful and kind and compassionate and gracious. Be like that. Christ made himself of no reputation to rescue us from hell and wrath. Christ always put God the Father first. Be like that. Christ prayed often, many times all night. Be like that. Christ hated sin. He hated all sin. Be like that. Christ loved God and others perfectly. Be like that. And because we love our amazing and good God so very much, in light of who He is and in light of what He's done for undeserving sinners like us, we will then earnestly, passionately seek to love what He loves. And guess what? He loves it. When his people are following Christ and when they are patterning their lives after his. What about you? So we are to follow the godly lives of those around us and order to better follow the pattern of Christ, the perfect pattern of Christ more and more in our own lives, all for the glory of God like the Thessalonians did more and more and more. Second, the Thessalonian Christians received the word in much affliction. Note first that they receive the word, and that's very good because many don't even do that. Received means to grasp, to be receptive, and to take a favorable attitude towards something. The picture here is of the Thessalonian Christians putting out the welcome mat for the word of God instead of slamming the door on the word of God. So God's word of truth was welcomed in their lives and in their church as a wanted guest. Very good. That reminds me of the Bereans who received the Word of God with readiness in Acts 17.11. Readiness means willingness and eagerness. The, the word in the original Greek is prothumia, from which we get our English word enthusiasm. And that's how the Bereans received the Word of God. Willing, eager, passionately, hungry, enthusiastically, and readily. And the Thessalonians were the same way. Look, receiving the Word isn't easy. Anybody? I mean, the word hurts. The word cuts. The word is sharp and convicting and very challenging. And many not only don't receive it with readiness, but they simply don't receive it at all, even in some churches. But because we love God, our God who saved us, and we also then love the book that He gave to us that gives us the truth. And our call 
is to open wide our mouths and devour the truth of God. Even when it challenges us, even when it challenges our doctrine, even when it challenges our lifestyle, and even when it's hard. So, it's our love for the Lord that causes us to love His written word that He inspired and has given to us for our eternal good and to receive it gladly in our heads and in our hearts. Do you, do you receive the word like that? Question, how do you feel about the word of God and how well do you receive it today? Well, again, those who love God should love the book that God has given to us. And because this book comes from heaven and leads us to heaven, shouldn't we then love it? Anybody? Right? I mean, how precious is the book divine by inspiration given? Bright as a lamp, its doctrines shine to guide our souls to heaven. Why should we love this book? Psalm 119, 7-11 extols the wonders of the Word of God by telling us a few important facts about it. I'm just going to walk through it. First, it's perfect. Psalm 119, 7. It's perfect. Perfect means complete, comprehensive, without defect, without blemish, undefiled, sound, wholesome, the Word of God. In other words, the Word of God lacks nothing in order that it might be what it should be. It is complete as a revelation of divine truth. It's complete as a rule of conduct. See, the Word of God covers every aspect of life. It's not deficient in any way. No, it's an all-sufficient revelation. How much so today, now that we have both the Old and the New Testament. Therefore, as one says, no matter what our sins may have been or our problems are, the Bible is able to turn us from our sin lead us through our problems, and both feed and enrich us so that we're able to enjoy the full benefits of spiritual life. And that's absolutely right. So we have everything that we need in the written Word of God. It's perfect. It's complete. It lacks nothing. It's fully sufficient for us. It's flawless. It's reliable. It tells us everything that God wants us to know about Him, life, salvation, sin, and everything else. The Word of God. Second, The Word of God is sure, it's certain, it's firm, it's dependable. This shows us that in a world full of lies and uncertainty, we can stake our present and our future on God's testimony or witness concerning Himself because His Word is truth. And therefore, God's testimony is worthy of our trust. That means that anything that doesn't agree with the Word of God is a lie. That's what that means. That means that the Bible is to be our one and only standard of life. That means that the Bible is our one authority, and the wise soul is the one who submits to that perfect and true authority. Look, because our God is the maker of all, then He has authority over all. And because God is the author of the Scriptures, then His Scriptures have inherent authority. The implication for our lives then is that we are to receive the Word of the Bible as the Word of God, and we are to respond to that truth accordingly. See, Scripture is the original authority of God, and that means that it doesn't change with the times, the culture, the nation, or the ethnic background. No. Instead, Scripture is the unalterable authority of God, the permanent authority of God, the ultimate authority of God, the binding authority of God. Look, God makes the rules and we don't. That's the truth. God sets the standard. We don't. God tells us what's true and what is false. 
We don't. God tells us how He wants to live. We don't. God tells us what sin is and what sin is not. We don't. What does God say is the issue? See, that's the issue. And it doesn't matter if your Christian faith goes against the cultures, uh, the, the, the currents of our culture and our society. Our standard is the Word of God. His Word alone is truth. And our call is to believe it, to submit to it, and to obey it. Third, God's Word is right. This is from Psalm 119. Right means righteous, straight, upright, just, and correct. That means that the Scriptures give us the right path to walk on in contrast to the way that leads to death and misery. Fourth, God's Word is pure, which means that it is without hypocrisy or blemish. Unlike the other sacred books of so many other religions, God's Word alone is pure, clean, radiant, and without fault. You say, no, John, God's Word is full of contradictions. No, it is not full of contradictions. And while there are tensions that are hard for our human minds to comprehend, and while there are indeed some difficult passages in the Bible, there are no contradictions in the Bible. And God's Word is indeed coherent, consistent, and true. And think about this. Even though the Bible was written by approximately 40 different authors over a period of around 1,500 years, And even though each writer wrote in a different style, from a different perspective, to a different audience, and for a different purpose, God's Word is indeed pure and true because God is the one who wrote it through divine inspiration. See, you don't have to be afraid to ask the hard questions of the Bible. No, please go ahead and ask the hard questions. We have nothing to fear if it's true, and it is true. So ask the hard questions and watch as God's Word passes every test because, again, it's the truth. Fifth, God's Word is clean. Clean means pure, genuine, flawless, and free from impurity. And then sixth, God's Word is true and righteous. True refers to faithfulness, reliability, and trustworthiness, while righteous suggests conformity to a moral standard. See, there's nothing impure, false, or unrighteous in the Word of God. Instead, God has given us a book, a perfect book that gives us everything that we need to know for life and salvation forever. And woe to us if we overlook this gift, this precious gift from God to us. Here's a question. Do you love it? Do you really love it? I mean, does it show, does it show in how well you receive it And in how you conform to it. That'll show if you really love it. The Thessalonian Christians are a great example for us today. But then look at this. Not only did the Thessalonian Christians receive the word, but they received the word, look what it says, in much affliction. And that kicks it up a notch right there. See, they didn't just receive the truth of God when things were easy for them to receive it and believe it and do it. No, they received it and they welcomed it even when it was very hard for them to do so. The Greek word for tribulation means to crush, to press, and to squeeze. The word's a very strong term which doesn't refer to minor inconveniences, no, but to real, true hardship. The word was often used of crushing grapes to make wine. So it describes intensely hard circumstances, severe suffering and and anguish, and brutal distress, oppression, and affliction. That was the Thessalonian believers. But even so, they still received the Word of God as a welcome friend. They believed it, 
and then they lived it out in their lives in the midst of great suffering. It was like that from the very beginning, right? I mean, we saw that, if you remember. Paul came to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey in Acts 17, and as he preached in the synagogue, many souls got saved, praise the Lord. However, trouble soon came, a mob gathered together, the city was set into an uproar, and the people went after Paul and his friends saying, those people turned the world upside down. Well, Paul and his companions escaped, but the new Christians in the city remained, think about that, they remained there in Thessalonica in the midst of great suffering and severe persecution. But even so, even so, they remained faithful and they continued to receive the word of God and to live it out in their lives. How good is that? That's following the example of Paul himself. I mean, just as Paul was a man of conviction who received the word, lived the word, and preached the word in the midst of hardship and and trial, they certainly observed Paul and they followed his godly example. See, Paul lived in such a way that he reflected the reality of another world. And now, the Thessalonians, after observing Paul, are following that pattern. Let me give you one example of that. Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20, verse 22, Paul's uh, talking to the Ephesian elders, and he tells them that he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he doesn't know what to expect, but in the next verse he says this, there's one thing that he knows for certain that chains and tribulations await him in every city. So there's that. Change and tribulations await me in every city. You say, wait, but I thought that if you were really doing the will of God, then God would make life good, and that you'd always be healthy and wealthy and happy, and nothing bad would ever happen to you. Uh, No. In fact, the Bible tells us the opposite as far as tribulations. It's back in chapter 14 that Paul said that we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. In 1 Timothy 3.12, Paul wrote that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And so persecution in some form is a promise for every Christian. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. In other words, as a Christian, you shouldn't be surprised by suffering because of your faith. No, instead, you should expect suffering because of your faith as a Christian. Why? Because Satan hates you now. He didn't hate you before, he hates you now. His people will hate you. And we are in a battle, a spiritual battle, and sometimes that means pain. Glories later, but for now, the battle. So Paul wasn't surprised when the Holy Spirit testified to him that chains and tribulations await him in every city. But look, that fact didn't keep him from doing what he knew God wanted him to do, for pleasing God is always better than escaping pain. And sometimes, God's people even walk into pain for the glory of God. And that's an example that Paul had set from the very beginning, and that's an example that the Thessalonian believers are following and that we too should eagerly follow if we're seeing things clearly. Change speaks of Paul being shackled and put into prison. We already know that uh, what tribulations mean, intense pressure and pain, and that's what awaits Paul in Acts 20, and he knows it. Is Christ still worth it, Paul? I mean, you've already had some wretched times because of your faith and because of your calling. And look, Paul, it's going to get worse, Paul. It's going to get much worse. And oh yeah, Paul, in just a few years, Nero's going to cut your head off. Is it really worth it, Paul? Well, 
What do you think? James Calvert was a young pioneer missionary to the cannibals in the Fiji Islands. En route, the ship captain tried to dissuade him, finally crying out to him in desperation, Calvert, you're going to lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. Calvert calmly replied, we died before we came. Now that's absolutely right. Jesus is our master and he's worthy even if it means tribulation. He's all that matters. And Paul knew that and the Thessalonians knew that. I pray that we know it. Look at Paul's response to the promise that chains and affliction to await him in every city, just continuing with Acts 20. Look, none of these things move me. That's the example he set for the Thessalonians, by the way. None of these things move me. How good is that? That's clearly the heart of the person who knows that he's not his own, but that he's been bought with the price of the precious blood of Christ. And now, look, the purpose of his life now is to glorify God. So therefore, none of these things move me except pleasing Christ. See, his aim isn't not to be chained up, and his aim isn't not to suffer. No, his aim is to please God. So be it, because he's worth it. And that's the example Paul set for the Thessalonian believers. So what moved Paul? Well, from Acts 20, 24, Paul says at first, I don't count my life dear to myself. Other translations put it like this. I don't consider my life worth anything to myself. I count my life of no value to myself. I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. I do not place any value on my own life. How can Paul say that? Because he knew that it's not this life that really matters, but the next. This life isn't dear compared to the next. For us in Christ. How so? Because Jesus, God the Son, took the believer's sin that condemns them onto Himself and He paid our wages in our place. He died so that we who believe could live. He became our substitute for sin. He took our wrath and paid all its wages. And now, by grace through faith in Christ, we who believe stand forgiven, clean, perfectly fitted for heaven, and eternal glory is now what awaits us as Christians. And that's why Paul can say, I don't count my life dear to myself, because Jesus was dear to him, and his life reflected that fact. What's Paul's aim? He says it, to finish his race with joy. Okay, so what would enable Paul to not just finish the race, but to finish the race with joy? This by knowing that God was well pleased with how he ran and lived and served and obeyed and fulfilled his calling. He's not perfect, no. But his aim is clear. The finish line is in sight and he's still running hard for the glory of God. Result? Joy. Because joy comes when we know that God is pleased. So this is Paul's earnest desire. This is what is truly dear to him. Finishing the race with joy, knowing that God is pleased. Finishing the race still running hard. And that's the example Paul set for these Thessalonian believers that they were now passionately living out in their own lives. So here's the question. Did Paul finish his race with joy? Anybody? Yes, he did. As he writes to Timothy at the end of his life in the wretched, dirty, dark Mamertine prison in Rome, just before his head was chopped off, which brought sweet relief to Paul, he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and now the crown awaits. Yeah, he finished well, and he finished with great joy. 
And as these Thessalonian believers ingested God's Word, and then as they looked around and saw others passionately living it out in their lives, even in the midst of hardship and trial and pain and and suffering, like Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, even in the midst of that deep affliction, look, they did the same thing that those examples did for the glory of God. Lord, help us to be like them. We know the truth. We believe the truth, head and heart, and and we live it out. And we're not going to let some affliction hinder us. No, we, we have more conviction here than that. And so we continue on, even in the pain. Because we love Jesus. Anybody? I don't know what lies ahead for us. Hardship, so be it. We're not going to compromise. As sure as night, life's troubles come. As sure as day, they're past. But surer still, that endless joy when heaven we reach at last. Christ is worth it. Christ is worth every bit of it. The Thessalonians knew that. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy knew it. I hope and pray we know it. Third, the Thessalonian Christians received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6. See, true joy comes from the Holy Spirit who lives in every Christian as our divine helper. And here we see that true joy supersedes tribulation. Look, these Thessalonian Christians not only received the word in much affliction, but they also received the word with great joy, even, think about this, even in the midst of that affliction. So look, externally there was affliction, but internally there was joy. Now that baffles people who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, but not us. Because the biblical joy that God gives, that transcends circumstances. What is joy? The word joy depicts jumping and shouting for joy that can't be contained. See, joy isn't just happiness, and it's not just an emotion. But the joy of the Lord, the joy that only God the Spirit gives, true joy is that deep down sense of well-being that abides in the heart of the person who knows that all is well between himself and the Lord. That means that because of Christ and who He is and what He's done, that we can be truly happy even when life is hard because we know that God loves us. We know what lies ahead for us. We know that God is sovereign. And we know that we stand forgiven as Christians with an eternal inheritance that awaits us. So even when the trials come... I can be joyful because I have Christ. See? And even though all men hate me, I can greatly rejoice because I know that God loves me. See? And even though I may lose everything, I can skip around because I know what lies ahead for me and it's all good for us in Christ. See? Biblical joy doesn't just come from favorable human circumstances, but it's sometimes greatest when those circumstances are the most painful and the most severe. Why? Because they are working for our eternal benefit. And because of Christ, outward circumstances really shouldn't affect our joy in the Lord. Not really. I mean, what can man really do to me? Not much. Note that joy doesn't mean that we put on our happy faces and deny that we're hurting. It doesn't mean that. It simply means this. That when believers suffer and grieve, they don't grieve as those who have no hope. See, our response to trials should distinguish us from the world. Underneath the grief and underneath the tears, there should be the confidence that God is in control and we trust Him. 
He will cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8, 28. Weeping may last for the night, but shouts of joy come in the morning, Psalm 30, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seeds, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him, Psalm 126, 5 through 6. So we can and we should respond to our trials and suffering with joy because we know the whole story. We know that God is good. We know that God is in control. We know that God has us all figured out. We know that God is working. We know that God is moving even through this trial and this pain in my life. And that's why the Thessalonians could be joyful in the midst of their affliction. And they learned that from Paul. See, the Thessalonians had undoubtedly heard of Paul and Silas's experience in the Philippian jail not long before they came to Thessalonica. Remember what happened there? The two preachers had been unjustly arrested and severely beaten by the civil authorities. They were then placed in a cell with their feet fastened to stocks, which was incredibly painful. Now, most people would feel discouraged if that had happened to them, beaten severely, put into prison, put into painful stocks. But what did, instead, what did bloody, battered, beaten Paul and Silas do? They sang. They rejoiced. Can you picture them? John Stott observes, It's wonderful that in such pain, with lacerated backs and aching limbs, Paul and Silas, at about midnight, were praying and singing hymns to God. Not groans, but songs came from their mouths. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. Now how good is that? Can you really praise God in prison? Can you really sing to God when you're being tortured and when you're in great pain and in the midst of severe affliction? Can you? Yes, clearly, according to the Word of God, you can. How? Because the Christian's joy comes from God, not from circumstances. One said, true praise flows from a heart that's satisfied in God and His abundant grace in Christ. That's right. And the Thessalonians learned that from Paul. They, they knew what Paul had been through. They learned it from Paul, and now they're living that out in their own lives. They had a great example, see. Joy rejoicing, singing in the midst of affliction because their eyes are on Christ. They're focused on Christ. What about you? Fourth, Paul says, you became examples to all who believe. Verse 7. You became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. How good is that? Look, they're impacting not just whole cities for the glory of God. They're impacting whole regions for the glory of God. So they themselves are not just following the examples of Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, and the Lord, but they themselves are being examples for others to follow after, and that's really the way it should be. Have you ever met a Christian? Have you ever met a Christian who's been a Christian for a long, long time, but instead of being spiritually mature adults, they're still spiritual babies? You ever met someone like that? Don't point fingers, I'm just asking. They just... They've just remained stagnant for years and, and maybe even for decades. They still know just a little bit of the Bible and, they, and because of that, they, they aren't really living out their faith like good warriors, seasoned warriors, seasoned spiritual warriors should live. How sad is that? Wasted years. Time lost forever. But not these Thessalonian believers, not at all. They are examples and they speak 
loudly to all of us here today. Note that the only church that Paul ever called an example was this church here at Thessalonica. What was their example? Remember from verse 3, how they had a work of faith, a labor of love, a steadfastness of hope in the Lord. What an example they are. And then here, how they followed the three missionaries and Jesus and how they manifested joy in the midst of trial and tribulation, which is all a great source of encouragement to other believers and a testimony to the fact that Christ is all that truly matters in this fast and fading life. That everything else is a chasing after the wind and leaves you empty and void. But Christ fills that void up to the brim. And He quenches the true thirst of the soul. And He gives true purpose and meaning and hope and life, life, eternal life, Jesus Christ alone. That's a great example. And that's one that I want to set for others around us. Courageous. Bold, firm, godly, humble, Christ-like, filled with faith, faith, filled with love, filled with hope, like other godly men and women like Christ. Examples. May there be many examples here today, and may Faith Community Church be a great example what a godly, Christ-like, Christ-centered church is. The word example literally refers to someone um, who leaves a visible mark or impression. It even refers to uh, something that leaves a mark by a blow from an instrument or an object. The word also depicts a pattern or mold into which clay or wax was pressed so that it takes the exact shape of that mold. Well, These Thessalonian believers left their mark on the people around them for the glory of God. They gave people a good mold by which they could live their own lives and thus look more and more like Christ. That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. Think about it. These Thessalonian Christians hadn't been Christians for that long. They hadn't been Christians for that long. But even so, they had learned much and they'd given their hearts fully over to the Lord. And while Thessalonica was a metropolis of Macedonia, as well as a seat of government and trade, look, it also became a center of spiritual life. How good is that? See, all believers throughout Macedonia and Achaia looked to the Thessalonians. As one said, the lives of good men and women are very precious. For they're a living proof of the power of God's grace. And they're also facts which can be seen and tested. Facts which show the world that God is God. And that God is real. And that Christ is worth living for. And that Christ is worth dying for. And that is absolutely right. Lord, help us to be examples like them here. Lord, help us. Eternally valuable. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. For the example of the Thessalonian believers, new believers, but great example for all of us today. I pray, Lord, that we would follow their examples and then, of course, follow the example of Christ more and more. Help us. Help us to be bold. Help us to fight sin, to hate sin. Help us to be great spiritual warriors for your glory. Help us to have an impact. May we be well-pleasing to you, Lord. This I pray. May we encourage one another in these great truths. Bless us now. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.